You just didn't want to see behind the scenes up here, right? It's too much already. It's okay. Sometimes I, I get the spittle going too, and you, you want to avoid that shower. As they go back to some of their seats, to some of their better halves, we're going to turn to Mark chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 45 through 56 this morning, and uh, we're going to get to work there in just a moment. But to help frame our time together this morning and to help us understand this text, I want to start by reading some Old Testament texts. And so what they're going to function to give us insight into really the heartbeat of the passage on down the road. And so right now they might not make a ton of sense. You might not be able to see how exactly they're connected, but I'm going to read them to you. I want you to kind of put them on the back burner, let it simmer in your mind a little bit, and then uh, I'll show you how they fit together later. So you're going to have to trust me. But first, we're going to read Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 14. Moses has just spoken with God here, and he's expressing his hesitations. And so he asks God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What's his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say to this people of Israel, I am sent me to you. Note God's name here, I am. Secondly, Exodus chapter 33, verses 18 through 23. Moses said, please show me your glory. He's again speaking with God. And God responds, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Note, pass before you. And will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, note this, while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Next we'll look at 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 11. The prophet Elijah has just finished up trolling the prophets of Baal a little bit, challenging them to light on fire a sacrifice, and to no avail, they could not. And he's on Mount Carmel, and he proves that there is only one true God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Israel. Yet despite winning the battle on the mountain, there's this lady named Jezebel who's trying to kill Elijah, and so he retreats, he's running away from fear. In fact, at one point, he asks God if he could just die, and God says, no, eat this. he sends an angel, says, eat this bread and this stuff. You have to travel a little bit. And so he travels for 40 days and 40 nights. It's really a long way. Eventually, he arrives at Mount Horeb, which is another name for Mount Sinai, which is where God spoke to Moses, which is where God gave the Ten Commandments. It's the mountain of God. And it's at this point we read in verse 9 of chapter 19 of 1 Kings. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. 
And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. Note this again, passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Lastly, we look at Job chapter 9 and verses 8 and 11. Speaking of God, Job says this, He who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. These verses serve to amplify the actions and the words of Jesus in our text today. They're going to help to turn up the volume in our hearts so that we might hear what Mark, through the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, intends to communicate to us. I've tried to boil it down into one big idea or one big thing for you to think on as we work through the text and as you uh, meditate on this passage throughout the week. That's Jesus is and should be recognized as the great I am. Jesus is and should be recognized as the great I am. Am. We're going to work through the text in three parts. We're going to see Jesus pray in verses 45 through 47. Jesus see and act in verses 48 through 52. And then we're going to see that Jesus is recognized in verses 53 through 56. Jesus prays, Jesus sees and acts, and Jesus is recognized. Before we get started, let's pray together. God, we ask that you would be present with us this morning. That all the cares of the world would uh, leave our minds. That we would focus on you right now and what you might have to say to us. Pray that you would help us to mature, to grow up in you and closer to you, as well as closer to one another. Build our community here as you build us up in the gospel. Help us to display your glory to this valley. To proclaim, to proclaim life to the dying. Father, we ask that you would do your work in us this morning. And let the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Amen. So let's look at verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. A little context here. Uh, Remember, he's just fed thousands and thousands of people, and he grouped them into certain sections that really mirrored the Exodus when Moses had people grouped, and they fed him with manna. Jesus feeds all these kids, everybody with a kid's lunch, and at this point, they're going, "This, this guy's the Messiah. People are connecting the dots, and so the messianic fervor is at a fever pitch, if you will. The groupings, together with other textual clues, have them thinking that he is the Messiah that they have expected. They think that Jesus is the conquering king. And they were right in thinking Jesus a king. But Jesus would not establish his kingdom by conquering others, but by being conquered for others. The people do not yet understand, though, and according to John chapter 6, verse 15, Jesus knew that they wanted to make him king by force. They wanted to force him into being their king and to march on Rome. 
seems kind of a silly idea to me uh, if they could force him. This is the guy that's raising dead and healing sick people. He just created food ex nihilo, and they're going to force him to be king. Just, I don't know, it just seems kind of silly to me. Not really well thought through. And so Jesus here wants to be rid of the disciples so he can dismiss the crowd by himself. And ask why? Well, because the disciples are not unsusceptible to this messianic contagion within the crowd. The crowd is going, hey, let's march on room. Let's set Jesus up as king. And the 12 are sitting around, and they probably have some of the same expectations. They're going, that sounds kind of good to me. And they're his inner circle. And so Jesus is like, I'm going to make this whole thing dissipate. You all go across the way. I'll catch up to you. I'll get rid of these thousands of thousands of people, which that's a minor miracle in and of itself. He dismisses the crowd, and they all hear him, and they all go away. The word translated here as he made is typically rendered forced in the text, that, in the version I'm reading, right? So he made them go across. He forced them to go across. He compelled them to go across. The disciples didn't want to leave Jesus. I think this suggests that they're reluctant to leave, and the apparent sense here is that the most expeditious way to remove the disciples from the scene and to persuade the crowd to leave is to have them go across before himself. Jesus is trying to avert this uh, revolutionary groundswell, if you will. He's not interested in marching on Rome. It's not what they expected. He's sending the disciples across the sea ahead of himself. He wants to make it easier to dismiss the crowd. And I imagine if I were in the crowd, or if you were, it would certainly be a little bit off-putting maybe uh, discouraging, you'd be let down, you have this expectation that uh, here's the king, the Messiah, everybody's waiting on, we're connecting the dots, he's raising the dead, he's healing people, saying the right things, and all of a sudden he has like this army right there at his fingertips, and he tells everybody to go home. He's not what they expected. They couldn't quite fit Jesus into their mold of what they thought the Messiah should be and what he should look like. Do you ever do this? Try and force Jesus to meet your expectations of him. I mean, have you ever tried to change or weasel your way around what Jesus has said or what he has did, done, <laughs> to make him more likable? Have you ever softened the command of Jesus to make him more palatable for others? Our God does not conform to our expectations of him. He does the unexpected. He comes in a cradle to take the cross for us so that we might be crowned with his righteousness rather than coming and demanding the crown that is rightfully his. He comes and bears the judgment that is ours so that at the end of days he can bring judgment without ending us. He is just and justifier. He is good. I also would like to point out here that it probably was pretty tempting for Jesus to cave to their expectations. At the end of the day, it had to be at least a little bit tempting, right? Skip the whole substitutionary death thing. Just be king. No suffering involved. Of course, that would have meant no rescue for us or any man. But Jesus could have saved his own skin. I certainly would have been tempted. And I think Jesus was too. In fact, I think Jesus struggled with this temptation his entire life. It's one of the ways that we're specifically told by Matthew in chapter 4 that Satan tempts him in the wilderness. 
I imagine that the evil one is silently whispering in Jesus' ear daily, all the kingdoms of the world can be yours if you will just serve yourself. And by way of serving yourself, worship me rather than the Father. Do you really need to suffer? Skip it. Serve yourself. What, what temptation lies deep within you? What selfish and sinful pursuit is being continually whispered in your ear? And how do you smother temptation and sin? Notice how Jesus combats this temptation in Matthew and the situation here. It's the word of God and prayer. I say both because the two go hand in glove together. If you're praying, well, your prayers will be driven by God's own word. And if you're studying and meditating on the word of God, well, you will be driven into prayer. Getting a little bit ahead of myself, so we'll we'll drop down to verse 46. After he had taken leave of them, that's Jesus... He's dismissed the crowd. He sent away the disciples. He went up onto the mountain to pray. He's finally getting his alone time with the Father. Remember last week, the thing that started all of this was he and the disciples were going to get away for some alone time together and alone time with the Father. But before they could even start their camping trip, get the tents set up and the s'mores roasting over the fire, the crowds were already there. They'd run ahead of them, interrupted them, and Jesus had compassion on them. Compassion on the crowds and served them. But he never forgot his need to pursue the Father in prayer. Do you ever forget to pursue the Father in prayer? My former pastor, Larry Trotter, uh, who's a master storyteller, uh, made me aware of something that John Ortberg wrote in his book that I think relates to this. And I'm going to try to tell the story a little bit like Larry does, so if you'll bear with me. He tells a story of a fellow named Doug Coe who had a ministry in Washington, D.C. And he became acquainted with a gentleman named Bob. Bob was an insurance salesman, completely unconnected with anybody in government circles. Bob became a Christian, and he began to meet with Doug and learn about his new faith. One day, Bob comes in all excited about a statement in the Bible where Jesus says, Ask whatever you will in my name, and you shall receive it. Is that really true? Bob demanded. Doug explained, Well, it's not a blank check. You have to take it in the context of all of Scripture. But yes, it is really true. Jesus really does answer prayer. Great, Bob said. Then I really have to start praying for something. I think I'll pray for Africa. It's kind of a a broad target. Why don't you narrow it down to, to one country, Doug advised. All right, Bob said. I'll pray for Kenya. Do you know anyone in Kenya? No. Have you ever been to Kenya? No. Bob just wanted to pray for Kenya, so Doug made an unusual arrangement. He challenged Bob to pray every day for six months for Kenya. If Bob would do that and nothing extraordinary happened, Doug would pay Bob $500. But if something extraordinary did happen, Bob would pay Doug $500. And if Bob did not pray every day, the whole deal was off. It's a pretty unusual prayer program, but then Doug was a a creative guy. 
And so a few months go by and nothing remarkable had happened. Then one night, Doug was at a dinner in Washington and the people around the table explained what they did for a living. And one woman said that she helped run an orphanage in Kenya, the largest of its kind. Bob saw $500 suddenly sprout wings and begin to fly away. But he could not keep quiet. Bob roared to life. He had not said much up to this point, and now he pounded her relentlessly with question after question. You're obviously very interested in my country, the woman said to Bob, overwhelmed by a sudden barrage of questions. You've been to Kenya before? No. You know someone in Kenya? No. Then how did you happen to become so curious? Well, someone is kind of paying me $500 to pray for Kenya? She asked Bob if he would like to come to Kenya and visit the orphanage. Bob was so eager to go, he would have left that very night if he could. When Bob arrived in Kenya, he was appalled by the poverty and the lack of basic health care. And upon returning to Washington, he couldn't get the place out of his mind. So he began to write to large pharmaceutical companies, describing to them the vast need he had seen, and reminded them that every year they would throw away large amounts of medical supplies that went unsold. Why not send them to this place in Kenya, Bob said. And some of them did. And this orphanage received more than a million dollars worth of medical supplies. The woman called Bob and said, Bob, this is amazing. We've had the most phenomenal gifts because of the letters you wrote. Would you like to fly back over here and have a big party? Will you come? So Bob flew back to Kenya. While he was there, the president of Kenya came to the celebration because it was the largest orphanage in the country. And the president of Kenya offered to take Bob on a tour of the capital city of Nairobi. In the course of the tour, they saw a prison. Bob asked about a particular group of prisoners there. They are political prisoners, he was told. That's a bad idea, Bob said brightly. You should let them out. Bob finished the tour and flew back home. Sometime later, Bob received a phone call from the State Department of the United States government. Is this Bob? Yes. Oh, no. Is this Bob? Yes. Have you been to Africa recently? Yes. My computer's deciding to shut off mid-sermon here, so I'm going to have to fly blind here. Um, says, yes. Well, we were told that you visited our country recently, and they released this group of political prisoners that we had been unable to get freed with our normal political maneuvering and diplomatic channels. So we were calling to thank you. Give me one second. <laughs> All right. Love my technology, but it's failing me right now. I'll start over. Is this Bob? Is this Bob? Yes. Were you recently in Kenya? 
Yes. Did you make any statements to the president about political prisoners? Yes. What did you say? I told him they should let them out, said Bob. The State Department official explained that the department had been working for years to get the release of these prisoners to no avail. Normal diplomatic channels and political maneuvering had led to a dead end. But now the prisoners had been released. And the State Department had been told it was largely in part because of Bob. So the government was calling to say thanks. Several months later, the president of Kenya made a phone call to Bob. He was going to rearrange his government and select a new cabinet. Would Bob be willing to fly over and pray for him for three days while he worked on this very important task? So Bob, the insurance salesman, who was not politically connected at all, boarded a plane once more and flew back to Kenya, where he prayed and asked God to give wisdom for the leader of the nation as he selected his government. What are you praying for? What are you praying for every day? What promise of God are you praying that Jesus would grant? Give it six months. Six months praying every day. And I'll make you a deal. I'll give you the Bob challenge. If you pray every day for six months and nothing extraordinary happens... Mike Friedline will give you $500. (laughs) Pray. (laughs) If you want victory in your life, pray. If you want to experience fresh grace, pray. If you want deeper intimacy with God, then pray. It's not easy. Many times you'll still feel dry as a bone. But you must press in. You must screw the truths of Scripture down deep into your soul until they well up within you as the Holy Spirit serves as a fresh cistern making readily available the knowledge of His new mercies and His new grace daily, moment by moment. Friends, pray. Do you ever forget your need to pursue the Father in prayer? Don't. What might God be waiting to accomplish through your prayers? Verse 47. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and Jesus was alone on the land. The point here is pretty cut and dry. Boat in the middle of the sea, miles out, Jesus on the land, on a mountain, in fact. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. Pause there for a second. This is miraculous. Never mind that it's between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. It's dark. But the disciples and the boat would have been out of sight in broad daylight. Jesus sees them. This is divine omniscience of the God-man. He sees the trouble of his people. He has compassion on them and he acts. And about the fourth watch of the night, between 3 and 6 a.m., as we've said, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by. Jesus sees the trouble of the disciples. He comes to them. 
walking on the water. Remember, it's a raging storm that he's walking in. may not be a usual event, but it's an actual event that's recorded here. It's not like Chris Angel or the magicians you might see on YouTube that walk on a pool of water that's very still by way of evenly spaced out plexiglass tables, as cool as that looks. There's no misdirection going on here. Jesus is walking on the sea in the middle of a storm in the middle of the night. And as the text says, he meant to pass by the disciples. This is a little bit hard to figure, right? If he means to pass them by, wouldn't it be pretty easy to avoid them? I mean, it's dark. The sea's pretty big. Boat's pretty small. Jesus is pretty smart. Is Mark saying that Jesus was unsuccessful in his attempt to avoid the disciples in the storm? I think not. I think the language employed here is intentional. And it's intended to make us recall the passages we read at the opening. It's used to help us understand what Jesus was doing. Displaying his glory. Just as the father with Moses in Exodus 33. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by. Just as the father with Elijah in 1 Kings. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. Just like God did with Moses and Elijah, Jesus is displaying his glory by passing by. He's whispering his fulfillment of Job 9. He is the one who alone stretched out the heavens. And he's trampling on the waves of the sea. Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Instead of understanding the figure to be Jesus acting as God and trampling the waves of the sea, the disciples mistake this display of glory for an evil water spirit or a ghost of some kind. Verse 49. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. And they cried out. Let's give them a break though, right? Waves would be crashing, the wind would be howling, and the darkness would be suffocating. Put yourself in their shoes. You fight against the boat's attempts to buck you from itself as it fills with water, and you strain at the oars in the pitch blackness. When suddenly lightning flashes and you see something, a silhouette, a man, not possible. It must be a ghost, whatever it is, it's not natural, This is scary. The disciples are frightened. And they certainly don't expect Jesus to just stroll up in the middle of a storm. I mean, would you? Verse 50. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. This last part of verse 50, take heart, it is I, and do not be afraid. Together with the end of verse 48, he meant to pass them by are crucial for our understanding of the text. We've already discovered how verse 48 points to Jesus' divinity and the fact that Jesus was displaying his glory. But now in verse 50, he is explicitly going to tell us his name. What do I mean? Well, usually I I don't bring up Greek from the pulpit as a rule. Because the English translations we have are great, they're trustworthy, they're excellent. However, I think that the point I want to make here is bolstered by the use of it. And it's difficult to see without it. Because the phrase in English, it is I, 
in Greek simply is I am. Ego, a me is the construction. And is identical with God's self-disclosure to Moses as recorded in the Septuagint, which is the Greek writing of the Old Testament. So what, Moses, what God says to Moses when he asks for his name is, Ego, a me. And what Jesus says here to the disciples is, Take heart. Ego, a me. I am. If I come to the people of Israel, God's, or this is Moses to God, and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people, Israel, I am has sent me to you. Thus Jesus not only walks in the place that only God's, God walks on the water, not only passes by to display his glory, but he also takes his name. Edwards beautifully comments here, Jesus walking on the water to his disciples is a revelation of the glory that he shares with the Father and the compassion that he extends to his followers. It is a divine epiphany in answer to their earlier bafflement when he calmed the storm. Who is this? In retrospect, Mark's Christology is no less sublime than John's. Although John has Jesus declaring that he is the Son of God, whereas Mark has him showing that he is the Son of God. You also might notice in this account here that uh, there's something missing. Typically, we associate Peter stepping out of the boat and onto the water and then sinking shortly thereafter. But that's omitted, which is, seems really odd because, after all, Mark is kind of Peter's secretary, if you will, and he's the one that's writing down uh, Peter's eyewitness testimony. I would like to suggest to you the reason that Peter omits his walking on the water from the account is to ensure that the spotlight remains completely on Jesus so that we don't miss the point of the text. It's not about Peter stepping out on the boat, but about Jesus walking on the water. After telling the disciples, cheer up, I am. Don't be afraid, stop sweating. It's all good. Jesus steps onto the boat, verse 51. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Only when Jesus joins the disciples in the boat does the storm abate. Being with Jesus is not simply a theoretical truth. It has practical and existential consequences, one of which is the safety and peace of the disciples. And so I ask, are you with Jesus? Is your life safe with him? Mark again reminds us that faith is not the inevitable result of knowing about Jesus or even of being with Jesus. Faith is not something that happens automatically or evolves inevitably. It's a personal decision or choice. In the Gospel of Mark, it's more often than not a decision that must be made in the face of struggle and trepidation. Discipleship is more endangered by a lack of faith and hardness of heart than by external dangers or circumstances. Is your heart hard? Is your life endangered by a lack of faith? Just as Jesus encouraged the disciples, he encourages you. Take heart. I am. Do not be afraid. 
Your salvation doesn't depend on your ability to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, but on Jesus' ability to pull you up in his own strength. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Jesus knows that you still have much to learn and endure. And here he won't give up on the disciples, neither will he give up on you in your ignorance and in your hard-heartedness. We all have bits and pieces of this in our lives. We're all walking with Christ. We're all in different places in this process of becoming more mature and ministering worshipers of him. The disciples aren't perfect and neither are you. That's why the gospel's so good. We get life together with God by grace through faith. Thank God it's Jesus' work that saves us and not our own. And so we can, we can stop sweating. Do I have enough faith? It's not the strength of our faith that saves, but the object of it in Jesus is mighty to save. So stop shoulding all over yourself. Rest in him. When they crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. I can't resist pointing out John's account here and speculating about teleportation, and so I'm just going to read what John says to you real quick. 6, verse 21 of John. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, that's Jesus, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So maybe they just rode to the shore really quick, or were almost there, or maybe there's another miracle here and they just teleported. I don't know, you can discuss it in Sunday school next week. The important part is that they end up in Gennesaret. There is a problem, though, if you are paying attention. They're supposed to be headed to Bethsaida. It seems as if the sovereign hand of God via the storm has changed their course. How do you react when God changes your course? How do you respond when he changes the course of your life? or demands that you change your worldview, or your philosophy, your job, or your spending habits. Can Jesus change the course of your life? Verse 54, And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him, and ran about the whole region, and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might even touch the fringe of his garment. And as many touched it were made well. The people of Gennesaret recognize Jesus. Do you? The people of the city run to Jesus. Have you? City people, country people, suburban people, even the village people all recognize that Jesus has come and will save if they simply go to him. Will you come to him? Jesus has seen you in the darkness of your sin and come to save you from the death you deserve by substituting himself for you on the cross. He took the darkness for you so that you might walk in the light. Will you trust him to change the course of your life Godward? Will you allow him to correct your thinking? Will you come to him by grace through faith and be made well? Our text today teaches us once more that in the midst of storms and hardships, adversities, 
It's at these times that Jesus reveals himself to the disciples. These two facets of trial and revelation combine to form a unified purpose, just as they did in the Exodus where God disclosed himself as I am, a go, a me, in the midst of Israel's oppression in Egypt. Likewise, here Jesus declares himself, I am, a go, a me, in the storm on the lake. Mark will reassert this point supremely in chapter 15, where in the catastrophe of the cross, the centurion recognizes Jesus as God's son. In storms, adversities, and defeat, human self-sufficiency is revealed for what it is, human insufficiency. When the defenses of human pride are breached, people sometimes see God's presence among them, even if at first it appears troubling and perhaps terrifying. My prayer for you all this morning is that you would be troubled and terrified, that you would see the cultural idol of self-sufficiency for what it is ultimately, insufficiency. The truth is, no matter how much self-esteem you get, you will never be truly happy, truly at peace, truly satisfied until you by faith come to know Jesus and follow him. It's only at the end of pride where we find the eyes of faith. At the end of pride lay the eyes of faith. So I pray that God would do that which is necessary to bring you to the end of yourself so that you might find true life in Christ even if it requires sending you into a storm. Friends, Jesus has passed by you this morning, revealing his glory to you through the preaching of his gospel. Jesus is and should be recognized as the great I am. Ego me. Will you recognize him? Will you run to him? Will you be made well? Would you pray with me in closing? Father, show us your glory. Whisper to us the greatness of your love and your provision. Crash down on us with the waves of your unending mercy and grace. Be our joy. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen.